I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Nice to be back for the latest edition of the Other Hand podcast. A packed agenda as always. I want to talk about your article that you posted on our Substack site, which in turn was an article that was published in the Examiner about the potential end of the tech boom. We both have lots of thoughts on that, but I think framing it around your published article would be a good start. As we're speaking, the early results from the US midterms are rolling in, and we don't want to give away too many hostages to fortune. But there's some interesting trends are already emerging, but it may be a good while before we know any final, final results. Other things going on worthy of mention, something that we haven't talked about for a long time, but we have talked about a lot in the past, is crypto, things, Bitcoin and other token and coin things. There's lots going on in that particular space at the moment. Uh, A bit of a crash, actually. I hope there isn't too much glee in my voice. And there are some very nice people involved in crypto. So um, my commiserations to them. But let's talk about that. Allied to crypto, there's quite a lot going on in currency markets. I think both of us have pretty strong views when it comes to the US dollar. And I think it's worthy of a mention today. And of course, we couldn't do a podcast these days uh, or any day without mentioning 
the circus that is UK politics. One of the things that I had hoped for as a result of Boris Johnson's departure from the political stage was that there would still be plenty of things to talk about in the UK, that the circus aspect of it would gradually fade. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case with already a ministerial resignation stroke firing in the Westminster bubble. So let's start, Jim. Let's go all the way back to that first item on our agenda, which is the question, and it is a question, is this the end of the tech boom? And if so, or whatever happens to tech, what are the implications for the Irish economy and indeed the Irish exchequer? Okay, Chris, uh, good to talk again. We we have spoken for quite some time about what's happening on the Irish corporate tax front with, um, you know, very strong tech results, particularly in the US, materializing in very strong corporate tax revenues in this country. And um, I, I guess we always feared that the flip side would be that inevitably when the time would come that those tech earnings and other multinational earnings would start to move in the opposite direction it would start to impact on the public finances here. Uh, to date, there is no evidence of that. Um, in the year, first 10 months of the year to the end of October, we collected over 16 billion. That's nearly 70% up on the corporation tax front. This year, we're going to take in somewhere between 20 and 21 billion. Um, and corporation tax, as I discussed last time, has become the second largest item on the tax front or under the tax headings next to income tax. So from a tax point of view, and also obviously from an employment point of view, it is interesting to see what's going on on the tech front at the moment. Um, We've seen the circus that is the takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk and the fallout from that. One of the fallouts is going to be significant job losses. Um, We've seen... Meta, the owner of Facebook, um, announcing significant job layoffs are impending. And um, Stripe last week, uh, Patrick Collison announced, I think, 13% of its global workforce. They employ about a 1,000 people here in Ireland. Uh, We don't know, as far as I know, the detail yet of who and how many will lose their jobs here in Ireland. But Collison's um, totally unlike, in marked contrast, to what Elon Musk did at Twitter. You know, Collison did this in a very classy way in the sense that, you know, he sent out a very strong communication about what was going on. And um, he basically said that they had over-anticipated the growth in the internet economy in 2022 and 2023. Um, It was not materializing that sort of growth. And the time had now come to start shedding labor to get the company back in shape again and to get revenues back in shape again. I guess this is symptomatic probably of the fact that over the last few years, you know, we have been in a massive tech bubble. It has been building and building. And like every bubble, there does come a point where it starts to deflate. In other words, it's, it, it gets way, way beyond what is justified in terms of its size. So that's now happening, the global tech sector. Um, I have no idea how it's going to materialize from here, but I suspect given the global economic backdrop, uh, particularly the impact that 
this global backdrop is going to have on consumer spending um, and consequently of advertising for social media companies. Um, we're, we're, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at the moment and we could see significant job layoffs in that sector. So that obviously, I think, will have implications for employment, particularly here in Dublin. And then the, the second issue, of course, is when does this start to materialise in a significant reduction in corporate tax revenues? And we've seen Michael McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, and Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance, you know, warning about the dangers of spending all of this tax revenue on the basis that it's not transitory. Some of it could well turn out to be transitory. And I think they're right in that regard. We are likely to see this boom in corporate tax starting to um, decelerate at least and probably reduce as we go through 2023. Worrying times, I think, for the tech sector uh, globally, um, particularly the tech sector here in Ireland. I just know so many graduates who've come out of college in recent years who have ended up working in one of the tech stroke social media companies. And you'd be just worried about their job prospects at the moment. It's uh, difficult to know how much to worry because uh, there's various angles to this. We call it a tech bubble. <clears throat> which is now bursting. And I think that's probably the right way to think about this. But we need to be careful with language. It's not March 2000, uh, the last time we had a serious bursting of a tech bubble. Back then... Chris, the tech... Chris sorry, I wasn't suggesting that for one moment. No, um, no, 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 no. Yeah. I know. I'm thinking more generally. Sorry, this is not, not anything really directed at your remarks. I'm thinking more about the general debate that I've seen conducted, particularly in the Irish media. And it's important to draw that distinction for for those recent graduates that know nothing of March 2000, possibly uh, not even born in March 2000. What happened then was the most extraordinary stock market bubble in equity prices of a colossal number of companies that didn't make any money, that had business models that would never make any money. And it was across the board, it was pretty indiscriminate, and it took in stock market terms, three years to wash out of the system. We went from March 2000 to March 2003 before things really turned around. Lots of other things happened around the t that time as well, not least 9-11. But it, it, it was a proper bubble that burst in a proper way. I don't think that's what's going on at the moment. I think this is more discriminate, if I can use that word, in that it is more stock specific. It's more business model specific. And the business model that has me worried the most for both structural and cyclical reasons, are technology companies that have one revenue source. That, in general, is, is uh, a thing to be avoided, particularly from a stock market investing point of view, is that when you don't have a diversified revenue stream and you don't have what Warren Buffett and others are called a moat around your revenue stream, in other words, competition can erode your revenues, uh, you, you, you do have question marks over the sustainability of your business model. So that's the structural stuff. And of course, the model that I'm referring to are uh, tech companies that rely almost exclusively or perhaps exclusively on advertising revenues. No other revenue sources or significant ones. Twitter is one of those. Uh, Facebook is another. I wonder about the uh, structural sustainability of that model, but also tactically, cyclically. We are in a slowdown stroke recession pretty much everywhere. We've talked about that a lot. And one of the things that 
is first cut in a recession from a corporate spending point of view is advertising. Consumer spending more generally is cut back as well and everything is related to everything else. So I think that they face both short-term and long-term headwinds with respect to their business models. Companies like Microsoft, I think, are in a much better position. So this is the sense that I'm trying to give that businesses are not in the situation that they were in in March 2000. The valuations are not as extreme and their business models are much more sustainable. Companies like Microsoft that have very diverse revenue streams, still not able to escape all challenges. Uh, Microsoft shares are off a lot. I do think those companies are, in, who Microsoft is another company that has a huge presence in Ireland. And I'd be much more confident about its prospects, both short and long term. Apple's another one, obvious one to mention. I'd be as confident about Apple's business model as I am about uh, Microsoft's. Uh, with the one exception, I worry about what's going to happen in China to Apple because of both uh, their production of iPhones in China is clearly being affected by China's zero COVID policy. And maybe that's something that we should talk about either on this or on a future podcast. But it's also being affected relatedly by the demand for iPhones in China. China's a big market for all tech companies, Apple included, and the Chinese economy is struggling. And I think that that's something that a theme that we will return to. So the, the point I'm making here is that different companies face very different headwinds, both short term and long term. So I don't think it's going to be all tech companies shedding loads and loads of workers and it's going to be an enormous bust in the way that it was a couple of decades ago. But I do think it's going to be a problem. One of the questions I have for you, Jim, and uh, <laughs> kick it for touch because it's, it's one of those big picture questions that I love, love to ask, um, is, is the political consequences of this as much as the economic ones, but both. Ireland has escaped the populist plague, as we have called it on this podcast many times, that's present in both Britain and the United States and elsewhere for lots of reasons. But I have always thought that for a long time, uh, Ireland has escaped populism, uh, for now anyway, you may be getting it in a couple of years' time, mostly because one of the key drivers of populism in both the United States and the United Kingdom is the existence of essentially a disenfranchised, a pissed-off industrial working class. People who used to work in steel, coal, uh, shipbuilding, uh, car manufacturing, the heavy smokestack industries that have disappeared, essentially. Most or all of the jobs in those industries have gone, leaving a slice of your demographic extremely pissed off. And that the votes for people like Trump and uh, the votes for Brexit were in part um, a protest vote over, over what's happened to their jobs and their communities. Ireland never had that industrial working class. It went straight from historically at least, from being an agrarian economy to a high-tech economy. That's a broad-brush comment, but it doesn't have that disenfranchised industrial working class that the others two have. If tech were to go through a serious bust, could a disenfranchised ex-tech workers be the coal, steel, um, mining, industrial working class now compared to, to um, Britain and the United States? Could that be Ireland's problem going forward? I'll tell you my answer. I don't think so, um, but it, I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, if you, you you've described the evolution of the Irish economy from basically an agrarian to a high tech economy, um, it, it wasn't quite that straightforward in the sense that we went from agrarian uh, through manufacturing and eventually morphed into much more of a high tech economy. 
it, it was wasn't very... much of a manufacturing economy, though, Jim, was it? I mean, you didn't have the, 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 no, the, it, the big we didn't, problem well, manufacturing steel, coal, cars, all that sort of thing. But, but we manufactured computers, you know, Dell and Limerick, for example, back in the day. So we, we, we made stuff and increasingly we're not making stuff. We're providing services, okay? Um, so, it, But it was a gradual evolution. And I think a very desirable evolution because as economies grow and develop, certain activities become less economically viable. They migrate to other locations. And I think this is the nature, whether you like it or not, of economic growth and development. And I think Ireland managed it well. And I think one of the reasons why we managed it well was the strong focus on education, because I think one of the problems in the UK and the United States is that the blue collar workers who lost their jobs had low levels of educational attainment. There was no strong focus on making sure that these people were um, educated to the highest extent possible. So they were pretty unemployable in other industries in many ways. Okay, whereas I think here in Ireland, we, we have managed that much, much better. And, and there has been a very, very strong focus on education. Okay, we criticize aspects of the education system here with justification. But still, I think, you know, the third level sector here, particularly, you know, does operate pretty well in the sense that it does produce a lot of well-educated, you know, relatively highly skilled uh, workers. So I think one one of the, the points about that is that we haven't had um, all of these workers cast aside from certain industries, unemployable, who then became the disenfranchised, bitter individuals who eventually drive this whole radical political populism agenda. Um, and if you look at those people who possibly, and hopefully not, but possibly and probably will lose their jobs in the tech sector here over the coming months, um, I think those a lot of those possess a lot of decent skills and they will become employable again. And I'd be surprised if they did become disenfranchised and, you know, resulting in the growth of political populism here. So I tend to agree with you on that, Chris. I don't think we're facing into that. But w one of the interesting aspects will be what impact it's going to have, for example, on the Dublin property and indeed the Dublin office market, because, um, if, if if you go in around the Grand Canal dock area of Dublin, for example, and if you look at the proliferation of high tech um, stroke social media companies in there, um, thousands of workers creating huge demand for property, um, creating huge demand for office space and so on. Um, if you were to see that tire deflating, well, per perhaps that will provide the solution to Dublin's housing challenge in the well, it, immediate term, it's, at it's least. A, it's a solution of sorts, but it's not the solution yeah, we, we it's not would the one have, you'd want. No, no, we would have wanted. Um, but uh, I was in Dublin this week, as you know, and chatting to a barman in a pub, enjoying a quiet pint to myself. And um, this chap turned out to be Brazilian, really nice guy, and he was telling me that he pays a thousand euros a month for a, a room, one room in a house. I don't know how a barman possibly affords that kind of accommodation cost um it, it, it I, that's just one anecdote about a story with which we are all very familiar with which is the unsustainability of property 
and rental prices in, in Ireland, but Dublin in particular. And I think it's a very interesting question. Will the, the shrinking of tech be sufficient to take some air out of that property bubble? I think the answer is yes, Jim, because I think there are other things going on as well. I think the bubble is being pricked, if you like, by several sources, not just the um, air coming out of technology. Global property prices, I think, are the indicator here that I would look at. And if you look at Australia, if you look at Canada, if you look at the UK, if you look at the United States, if you look at Sweden, everywhere you look at property markets, particularly ones that have been going gangbusters like Canada, they're coming down. And there's uh, increasing evidence that where I'm sitting, for example, in the UK, that the property market, particularly residential, but also commercial, is is uh, deflating very rapidly, another bubble metaphor. So uh, I don't know whether Ireland can remain immune to that. It appears to have done so far. I don't see any signs of Irish property prices coming down. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's only a matter of time. It strikes me that this global property bubble, you might remember that one of the things that we've always said is that it's all very well for populist parties like Sinn Féin to say that we can solve the housing crisis because it is a uniquely Irish problem. It isn't. It has a global dimension because it's a property price problem everywhere. It looks like it's, it's ending, or at least begin, the beginning of the end is here. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, what I'm hearing on the property side is that, okay, the, the, the data certainly showing some deceleration in the rate of increase. Um, I think it's pretty modest, but it is showing some deceleration. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons. Well, there's a few reasons for that. One is um, affordability. You know, prices have risen to such extreme levels that for many people, affordability is a massive issue. Secondly, um, rising interest rates. And thirdly, a very uncertain economic outlook. Um, what I'm hearing from some estate agents, at least, is that um, this slowdown in the market is manifesting itself in a smaller number of people viewing properties that are on the market. Whereas a few months ago, you might have had 60 or 70 people day one. Now you might have 20, 30. So that could be the first signs of um, the market losing steam. Um, I kind of hope it is, to be honest, because um, I would love to see the housing market moderate and possibly go into decline a little bit to try and bring more supply, bring more affordability back into the system. Um, I, I think just on the the whole tech side, um, it's really going to be important to watch over the coming months. I think obviously the announcements we're getting from these companies in terms of um, employment, um, and secondly, how it's impacting on corporate tax revenues and it is going to take some time 
for this to feed through in a significant way. But I am a, a later middle-aged um, conservative, slightly right of center. Tech um, dinosaur. Tech dinosaur, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, uh, fiscal conservative, you know, and I would have, I would always rail against governments turning around and spending massive amounts of money, um, particularly on the back of a tax base that might prove transitory. So I think careful management of the public finances here will be required for the foreseeable future. And um, that could pose a problem for Sinn Féin if they get into government next time, because the plans to spend money are pretty extreme. So if the tax base is starting to uh, deteriorate and and it's not just corporation tax take will deteriorate income tax will as well because a lot of those workers in the tech sector are relatively well paid and make a significant contribution to income tax revenues so it's it's certainly one to watch and i think it's it's going to be probably a topic we'll be discussing in every second podcast at least for the foreseeable future the other point just going back to the earlier part of our discussion and I refer to tech bubble. And um, I, I think it is worth reflecting a little bit on, you've mentioned what happened in the early 2000s when the um, the internet bubble as such, or the dot-com bubble as it was called, burst. I remember in the late 90s visiting um, an Irish fruit company and uh, they were scratching their heads the morning I went in to meet them because they had just put dot-com after their... Um, title and suddenly their share price had gone into the stratosphere and and they just couldn't figure it because um you know the nature of the business hadn't changed um the notion of selling fruit online you know was never going to be terribly revolutionary um given the nature of the product but yet the share price had absolutely soared so they were scratching their heads in disbelief but i think more fundamentally there was a whole, there was thousands of internet or dot-com stocks um, delivering massive returns for people who invested in the equity or the shares in those companies. And yet those companies never made any money. They never would make any money. And most of the people who purchased those shares um, had no idea what the company was involved in. And I remember stockbroking firms here in Dublin back in that period opening late at night to facilitate working people who wanted to uh, transact at night. Um, And, okay, obviously back then uh, there was a lot less technology driving share transactions. So there was was a huge element of physical presence to to drop in and sort of buy the shares as such. But... um, Jesus, Jim, you're talking about the Stone Age here. I am talking about the Stone Age, but I remember somebody telling me they had bought a dot-com stock, uh, really excited about it, and they could barely tell me the name of the company. And secondly, they had no idea what the company actually did or would the company ever make money. And the chances in over 90% of cases, none of those companies ever made money and eventually disappeared and you know, hence the bursting of that particular bubble. We are in a very, very different place at the moment. Um, And I I would agree with you. I think there's a huge element of country-specific, company-specific issues at the moment. 
Uh, what, but what as... about the issue that for me that's a really interesting one is that we've all become used to since since that tech bubble actually over the last couple of decades and now there's a whole generation having grown up with the idea that things like Facebook and Twitter are free um, and of course they're not really the uh, the revenue stream that they get from advertising is effectively the price that we pay because we have to listen to the ads but there's also the uh, provision to Facebook, Twitter, and other companies of our data, which we give them for nothing with alacrity, and nobody seems to care. I wonder whether that era is coming to a close in a number of ways. Um, I certainly hope that we start giving away our data less freely. I think that that is is a real problem, um, both economically and societally, and I'll park that for a second. But it's this idea that we get all of these services, like this thing that we're using for our podcast today, Jim, is, is free software that I found on the internet and so many different examples of that. It's not just Twitter and Facebook. It's many other things that we use um, are ostensibly free. Is that coming to an end? Because Elon Musk has been criticized heavily for his proposal that we, uh, most of us, if not all of us, end up paying $8 a month for use of Twitter. And to varying extents, we both use Twitter. 300 million people worldwide use Twitter. None of them pay for it. They all We all get ads on Twitter. And there are ways around that, believe it or not. Um, but uh, it's odd, isn't it? We all expect to get these services for free. And we are up in arms at this Looney Tune suggestion by this mad fella, Elon Musk, that we pay for it. I think there are lots of things wrong with, with Mr. Musk, but the idea that we actually pay for things that we use is is important, I think. So, Jim, do you think that it's reasonable to expect us to start paying for things like Twitter and Facebook and other social media? Should we be paying for our WhatsApp and other services? Is it completely mad for Elon Musk to think about charging? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I think when the whole business model changes when the economic environment changes um, these issues start to become more paramount for companies so uh, no inevitably I think we will end up paying for a lot of this stuff and if we value it so highly we'll be prepared to pay for it Uh, there will obviously be some people who will not pay but I think the majority of people who use Twitter would be prepared to pay for it to be perfectly honest Um, and uh, okay and that is I guess, separating the issue here from paying for Twitter and the behavior of Musk at the moment, you know, his call in the last 24 hours for people to come out and vote for the Republican Party. Um, I noticed Stephen Fry, for example, um, exited Twitter with his 14.1 million followers yesterday. So inevitably, there will be losses. But I, I do think at the end of the day, that a lot of stuff we take for granted, we will end up paying for. Chris, moving to the US midterm elections, uh, you correctly said at the beginning, we don't want to make ourselves hostages to fortune at this stage. Um, A few interesting things strike me about the elections. One is down in Florida. Um, It has really become a Republican stronghold now. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, cruised home as governor and Senator Marco Rubio um, flew home again. So the Republicans are becoming more and more entrenched in that state. But the interesting point about uh, those two people is that they could never be described as 
fans or supporters of Trump at this ju- at this juncture. So that's one thing Trump is not getting or would not appear to be getting the lift in these elections that he was promising he would get. And the second thing I guess that's interesting is that the um, the Republican wave has not materialized and opinion polls once again um, have come up lacking. Yeah, it's interesting that the polls, again, um, are wrong. That's been a trend on both sides of the Atlantic for quite some time now. I remember how wrong they got the Brexit referendum. So as you say, it's early days yet, and the Republican wave, according to Senator Lindsey Graham, hasn't emerged. So they're going to have to engage in a bit of a blame game and all of those things uh, that arise from underperformance. Um, but it, uh, nevertheless, it looks like the um, Republicans will get the House of Representatives and it looks a coin toss at the moment for the Senate, but we shall see lots of water to flow under the bridge. But it clearly reveals a Republican resurgence of sorts, if not as big as previously thought, and a very divided country. And that's, I think, very sad um, and is very serious. But it may lead Donald Trump to uh, reconsider, perhaps, his run for president. Maybe not. We don't know yet. But it certainly had on the face of it, has not been a victorious night for Trumpism, which is about the best that we can say for it, I think. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting that given the cost of living crisis in the stage, rising interest rates, the much more uncertain economic environment that um, Biden and the Democratic Party did not get a, a hammering in this election. It's so, very strange, isn't it, Jim? Mm, that, very that strange. The, a country like the United States... Right, which seems to vote on the price of a gallon of gas, gallon of petrol. I'm sure that's they're a little bit more sophisticated than that. But to the extent that that is true, that soundbite that has permeated the media over the last while, which is that Biden and the Democrats are going to do terribly because of the price of petrol, the price of gasoline. Uh, it's ridiculous because the price of gasoline really has got nothing to do with the United States. It's set on global markets, not even in the US as a big oil producer. And inflation, more generally, the other big driver, is something that is, to the extent that it is a US phenomenon, it's in the hands of a politically independent central bank. It's got nothing to do with Biden whatsoever. And most of the inflation that they're experiencing is because of the war in Ukraine. It's got nothing to do with anything that's going on in the United States. So why you should vote one way or the other on the basis of something that your representatives can do absolutely nothing to influence one way or the other it's it, democracy is a bizarre thing when we see it in action, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was overheard a conversation um, a few days ago, which got me thinking about the relationship between voters and politicians. Um, somebody was talking about the problems that are now besetting the tech sector, the likelihood we would see job losses and government is being blamed. And yet in the same sentence, um, when talking about the economic boom we've enjoyed here over the last two or three years, it's been put down to luck rather than the skills and actions of the political system or the, the government, I suppose, more precisely. So government gets no credit for stuff that goes well and gets all the blame for stuff that doesn't go well. I always thought that was my role, Jim. I thought that was my role in life, that I'm here to take all of the blame and none of the credit pretty much for everything <laughs> that goes on around here. Anyway... We are, yes. a strange, we are a very strange species. We have COP27 going on at the moment where we're worried about the future of the planet. 
the planet will be fine. It's the people that live on it that may not be quite so um, advantaged or disadvantaged. The planet will survive a lot longer than we will, I suspect. Uh, indeed, when I look at these sorts of things, politics in particular, I actually wonder how this species has managed to survive quite as long as it has. Um, I think that's that's a bit random. But going back to more substantive things, things that we actually know something about, Jim, one of the things that we've talked about many times, but not recently, has been crypto, things Bitcoin and other coins and other tokens. And it was a bad day in the markets yesterday. Uh, at one point, Bitcoin was close to 20% down on the day. And I, as I'm speaking at the moment, it's down again from its close of yesterday, according to my screen, of nearly another 10% fall. It's below 18,000. So it's the lowest it's been, certainly by my rough reckoning, in two years. Uh, it's been pointed out that five years ago, if you had invested in US equities and Bitcoin, you would have been much better off in US equities. So uh, Bitcoin as the inflation hedge, as the hedge against the political debasement of the currency and all those other things that we were supposed to buy it for, so far at least, have not proven true. Yeah, and it, it is certainly not delivering one of the functions of money, which is a store of value. Or stability either, or a, or an inflation hedge, or indeed any any of those other things that it has been, been claimed for it. One of the re, one of the many reasons for, for this, and it's always a complicated story, there's never any one driver of this, but it's an example of how everything is connected to everything else. One of the things that I am most fondest of saying is that we live in a world where everything is connected to everything else. Zelensky told COP27 yesterday that there wouldn't be progress on the environment until the war in Ukraine was over uh, and things like that. And so everything is connected to the Ukraine war, but more generally, everything is connected to everything else. We have the Ukraine war contributing to the rise in interest rates. We have the rise in interest rates and government bond yields causing, for example, the end of Liz Truss's premiership here in the UK and the most amazing blow up in government bond markets in the most obscure, the most boring part of financial markets, pension funds. It required a 65 billion intervention from the United Kingdom. Bitcoin and crypto is being affected by this as well, because one of the drivers of yesterday is the uh, shortage of liquidity, a liquidity problem. And that's what happens during um, rises in interest rates is that where in your financial system, in your economy, people have borrowed too much money on the expectation that interest rates are going to stay low forever. That's where you get the problems. And those problems can crop up in the most unexpected of areas, boring parts of the UK pension market and weird parts of the crypto market. Uh, people are over leveraged. The one thing I would say to you, Jim, is that there's more of this to come because we're going to get blow-ups somewhere where we don't expect them, perhaps even where we do. People are looking at uh, leverage in the private equity industry sector at the moment as a potential issue going forward. And there are other uh, areas. So I, I, think, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And until interest rates stop going up, we're going to get these blow-ups in strange and perhaps not so strange parts of the financial system. Remember, the financial crisis of 12 years ago, or whatever it was, was caused by people believing that house prices couldn't go, to, couldn't ever go down, that they would only ever go up. We now have a building mini financial crisis based on those people that thought that interest rates could never go up again. So I think that crypto yesterday is an example of this, and that there is more to come. 
Yeah, the specific story yesterday was the uh, takeover of a company called FTX, which is a crypto company by a guy called CZ Zhao. I've probably got my pronunciation all wrong. Um, and the FTX is led by his one, and this is how it was described. The company FTX is led by his one-time disciple and close friend, who's now his main rival, a guy called Sam Bankman-Fried. And um, the word disciple there just struck me as interesting because anytime we have criticized crypto, which we've done a lot since we launched this podcast, the the zealotic response you get is quite extraordinary. You know, there's there's, there's a real sense that this is a, a sort of a religious cult full of disciples. So um, it's it's interesting, but uh, it's it's a mess. Fi- final point: UK politics. Um, Sir Gavin Williamson has just been sacked by Rishi Sunak, um, and this guy has the honour of now being sacked by Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and Rishi Sunak. Yeah, it's incredible. Chap. Yeah. As I said, I had hoped that the circus that was UK politics was over. Um, with the demise of Boris Johnson's political career. Uh, it's not even clear that that career is over. He's making all sorts of noises at COP27. But UK politics is a circus. The Prime Minister is very weak. He's clearly got poor judgment. He should never have brought this chap, Gavin Williamson, back. Um, and it just so it continues. I mean, it's going to be a topic. Uh, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good, but we can. Keep, we're going to be talking about this for a long time, Jim, at least until the next general election in the UK, uh, because it is a circus, it remains a circus, and it will stay a circus. Uh, they, 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 they've lost the art of governing. They don't know how to do it anymore. Uh, but this is just the latest mini instalment. And by the time we do our next podcast, there will probably be another one. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.